You're listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We recently moderated BMO Financial Group's weekly look at the COVID-19 crisis with Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, and subject matter experts from the macro perspective at BMO Financial Group, including Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory and Head of Fixed Income Strategy Margaret Cairns. Here is an excerpt of Dr. John White's comments from that conference call. Dr. White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. John White is the chief medical officer, once again, of WebMD. In this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely health issues. Keep in mind too that Dr. White also continues to see patients in Washington DC and the Maryland area. Therefore, he is on the front lines with respect to what is occurring in terms of coronavirus right now. Here are Dr. John White's comments from this week's conference call. Thank you, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. I know there's um some anxiety about what's going on with COVID-19, but what I'm going to do over the next few minutes is tell you what we know and, and where I think we're going. So let's start with the facts. This is as of uh, about 30 minutes ago. Globally, there's 351,731 cases of coronavirus and 15,374 deaths. In the United States, we have over 34,000 cases. Um, but important to keep in mind that different parts of the country are experiencing different levels of COVID-19 activity. So I, I mentioned there's 34,400 cases. Half of those are in the state of New York. 9,000 are in New York City. And if I took California and Washington, that's 60% of all current cases of COVID-19 in the United States resulting in 414 deaths. I want to talk about what's new since our last call, where there's been more discussion about COVID-19 activity in young people. And by young, we're really counting between in early 20s to late 40s. Um, there's more cases here than in Europe, but also keep in mind that the majority of deaths are still around people of 80 years of age. There's been no deaths in the United States of anyone between the ages of 0 and 19, um, and four deaths between the ages of 20 to 44. Um, I don't want to diminish that young people can get COVID-19, and there's lots of talk, and I'm going to come back to it, about the mitigation strategies that we need to make sure that we're enforcing in youth and younger folks. But remember, it's it's actually more than 80% um, are surviving. 80% have mild to moderate disease. Probably 90 to 95% actually are surviving coronavirus. That doesn't mean that there's not morbidity associated with it. The 
course to recovery typically is about two weeks for mild symptoms, and it can be three to six weeks um, for those that have severe cases, and there is some concern about residual decrease in lung function. But these are the things that we need to be thinking about and why it's so important, these mitigation strategies. And I do want to mention at WebMD, where we have 81 million unique visitors every month, we launched a daily news video called Coronavirus in Context, where I'm interviewing folks and really trying to get practical tips from experts. I'm going to share what I've been learning, and I'm sharing the videos uh, with our BMO colleagues. Uh, and the, the perch really has given a perspective to share, and I'm going to talk about what I've learned from talking to the Surgeon General, Dr. Eric Topol, who's head at Scripps, Dr. Mitchin Elkin, who's the president-elect of the American Heart Association, and what's the relationship between heart disease and coronavirus, Dr. Ann Peters, the head of the diabetes program at USC, to hear what's happening about those folks with diabetes and coronavirus, and then Dr. Kaplan, who's from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, uh, a professor of surgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm going to share some of these insights over the next few minutes. Let's talk a little bit about testing. That's an important component. There's now over 254,000 tests. When I talked last week, there were about 20 to 30,000, and that's really been because of the inclusion of the private sector. Uh, and I will tell you that 254,000 tests doesn't include local lab tests at hospitals. It's really the community-based testing that's state-managed but locally operated, adapted to local needs. And that's what's important. And we're going to see a steep rise in the number of new cases because we are testing about 10,000 people a day minimum. So that results in a lot of new cases when we increase the denominator, but that's expected. And I don't think we're talking enough about it doesn't mean the situation is getting worse as we find new cases because we know there's community spread. But if you take the total denominator, including that we're testing people who should be at higher risk, less than 10% are testing positive. The other good news is the FDA announced this weekend it approved through an emergency use authorization for a point-of-care coronavirus test that's going to give typically within 35 minutes. And we expect that to be in production at the end of March, so that's good. But here's where we are in testing, a couple important points, because I know a lot of folks are concerned and want to get a test. So the recent guidance from the CDC focuses on inpatients. Those hospitalized patients who have signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and the test result is going to inform decision-making. And then other symptomatic individuals, the elderly, which we're defining as greater than age 65, with chronic medical conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, respiratory problems, or an immunocompromised state, cancer, HIV, that might put them at higher risk uh, for poor outcomes. And then symptomatic healthcare professionals. And the reason why we have this priority is even though we have a lot more tests, we are concerned about the number of reagents that are necessary as part of testing, even the number of pipettes, um, as well as to do the test in its current state, you need to have a personal protective device, and those can be in short supply. There's also 
uh, perhaps some testing that's going to be able to be self-testing done at home, and we'll hear more about that. And depending upon where you live, you might have heard that several cities aren't doing testing anymore. Los Angeles County, New York City, um, <coughs> excuse me, unless it's going to change care, and that's an important component. Let's move to the mitigation strategies. How are we fighting this, you know, pandemic? And on March 16th, the president announced the 15 days to slow the spread. I point out that it's March 16th because March 31st will be the end of those 15 days, and we'll expect to hear some new guidance. But this is about social distancing still, the cancellation of events, avoiding crowds of 10 or 25 people. Different states have different numbers. And then, obviously, practicing good hygiene. Strategies are differing by location. Several states have a shelter in place, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, California, Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, Louisiana. I discussed that with the Surgeon General. These are shelter-in-place orders. They're not lockdowns, and strategies are going to differ by different regions. But if you ask me what I expect to hear at the end of the 15 days, if you've been following this, in the last day or two, we've been hearing more and more about risk-based stratification in terms of mitigation strategies. So we're starting to think more about is locking down and closing schools is that potentially causing more risk if kids are staying with elderly parents or grandparents? What's happening with the colleges? Can we think more about stratifying and mitigation strategies based on risk? I think that's early on, but I think we're starting to hear about it, recognizing how long this might go on and having really local responses based what's happening in the region. And the reason I bring that up, there's been a lot of talk about modeling and where we are on the curve. Everyone's talking about flattening the curve, and that's a good thing. And Dr. Fauci has been talking this weekend about how he doesn't think we're like Italy and that our curve is going to be like Italy, which is the most concerning. Excuse me, most concerning. And the reason why that is is the Italian population is older. They have significant more comorbidities, and 99% of the deaths in Italy have been in people with one or more comorbidities. They have a higher smoking rate. They have a higher obesity rate, and they started their mitigation strategies much later on. So there's lots of talk about where we are on the modeling, whether we're 10 days behind, 7 days behind, but it's not truly comparing apples to apples. I really want to focus on that because the denominator in terms of testing has been very different. We're slowly catching up. Um, but I want you to keep that in mind when you think about modeling because the Italian population is very different than the U.S. population, even if they have more beds per capita um, than the U.S. The CDC recently launched a coronavirus Checker at coronavirus.gov. You can enter your symptoms, whether or not you're a caregiver, whether or not you're male or female, and your age. I'm going to tell you, it, honestly, it needs some work. It really focuses on if you're short of breath, if you have a high fever, then basically tells you, you know, call 911. But at least it's progress. 
in terms of trying to give people good information. Um, Brian mentioned I still see patients. I saw patients on Friday. And I'll tell you the telehealth benefit and improving um, how we do telehealth and removing some of the regulatory burden really improved my day. 80% of the patients were by video conferencing or by phone. Only about two or three patients came in. And that really helps in protecting surge capacity, in conserving important equipment. Um, in, in the past, there, there really has been a lot of regulatory burdens to uh, telehealth, especially relating to what platform you could use. You couldn't use FaceTime. Now you can. You previously had to be licensed in the same state as you saw the patient. That's been waived for now. CMS has said it will not, it will have selective enforcement, and if you can prove a good faith provision of telehealth, that's important. So that's something, you know, in the future that I think really can change um, some aspects of our care, the telehealth benefit. I'm going to send all of these videos that I've been doing with people specifically about cancellation of elective surgeries, both the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Medical Association has supported that to protect surge capacity. Um, we talked about a vaccine trial that's currently underway. It started last Monday, and I'll talk to you about from my FDA experience. We all know that's an 18-month endeavor under the best of circumstances, and it doesn't mean that you, you are successful right out of the gate. Instead, let's talk about treatment. Lots of folks have been talking about uh, Flaquinel, which is hydroxychloroquine, and perhaps the use of azithromycin. One concern is that Plaquenil hydroxychloroquine uh, is currently used for patients with lupus, so there's a concern about potential shortages. Um, and where we are there, and I say this from my FDA experience, and Dr. Topol has talked about this, we still need to look at data. We don't all of a sudden lose objective interpretation of information. We still can do clinical trials, and, and in my time at FDA, we talked about real-world clinical trials, and that's what we're doing now. So some patients are receiving this, these drugs under certain indications. We need to collect the data. We need to publish the data and look at the data. I'm going to be honest, it's still early on whether to know if these drugs will work. In theory, they're, they're not antivirals. They're anti-parasitic. Um, they're, anti, they're antibiotics, so we'll have to see. There's also studies being done on remdesivir, uh, which was used for Ebola. So there's more progress in terms of treatment than where we are in terms of vaccine development. You know, in terms of um, optimism, I, I, I was mentioning to um, some folks how uh, Dr. Fauci here in D.C. was seen walking with his wife uh, very casually uh, over this weekend, which is in some ways a, a very good sign. Uh, but more importantly, he has repeatedly talked about that we're using the right public health strategies, which we know are effective in terms of social distancing, good hygiene, protecting surge capacity, thinking about therapeutic interventions, while still at the same time um, starting vaccine development. And our population, as he has said repeatedly, is very different than that of Italy. So we're doing all the right things. We're following effective public health strategies. 
If there was a concern I, I've had, I've, I've said it before, there's a lot of armchair epidemiologists and armchair infectious disease doctors who um, are very much gloom and doom and not necessarily giving us the best information that can be conflicting with other experts. I really have been talking to the folks that are on the ground, um, treating patients that are managing it from a health system, from a state, from the federal government, and we need to have more discussion about effectively communicating risk. And, and that was one of the challenges that we've had in a younger population where we typically saw a lot of people still uh, on the beach in Florida. And I think we're making progress there, but there's still work to be done because we know the young folks are not watching the presidential briefings. They're not going to the CDC site. So how do we help educate everyone effectively about communicating risk. And I think one of the biggest changes that we're going to see uh, in another week or so where we start to have more data about how we're doing in the mitigation strategy is how do we more uh, stratify risk so we can, you know, address the, the overall challenges of social distancing. Here are Dr. John White's conclusions with respect to the major topics covered in this week's call. As of March 23rd, there are 351,000 cases of coronavirus globally and 15,000 deaths. In the U.S. alone, there are 34,000 cases and 414 deaths. Clearly, these numbers are going to be changing as time goes on. Nearly half of the U.S. states uh, and U.S. cases, I'm sorry, are in New York State. While COVID-19 in younger people, meaning early 20s to late 40s, do exist, it is important to note that the majority of deaths are people in their 80s. Also, more than 80% of people who get COVID-19 are surviving, and 95% of the people that have contracted the virus have only mild symptoms, which last about two weeks. In the last week alone, Dr. White has spoken to specialists in public health and government and shared the following insights during the call. In terms of testing, there have been over 254,000 tests administered, which is a significant increase from the 28,000 just a week earlier, mainly attributed to the inclusion of the private sector in testing. Note this figure does not include local clinics and hospitals in our purely community-based testing. Not surprisingly, there's a steep rise in the number of new cases, which of course was expected. This does not mean the situation is getting worse because we know there is a community spread and still less than 10% of all people are being tested positive. In terms of mitigation strategies, many states, including New York and New Jersey, have shelter-in-place orders following President Trump's March 16th guidelines on limiting gatherings and closing schools. New guidelines are expected to be announced on March 31st from the federal level. Dr. White expects that there will be an increased focus on risk-based stratification in terms of mitigation strategy going forward. This means the absolute measures such as closing schools may not apply to all and there could be refinement on how to practice social distancing. Important to note that the U.S. is different from Italy, which has a significantly older population with higher smoking and obesity rates. Italy also started mitigation much later. It is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. 
A number of existing drugs which are used to treat lupus, Ebola, are actually being discussed as potential treatments, but they are still very early in the stages in terms of studying these and need more data and more time through clinical trials. Lastly, there is reason to be optimistic as we are using the right public health strategy in terms of social distancing, preventing surge capacity, vaccine development, therapeutic intervention, and good hygiene. Please reach out to us if you'd like to hear further topics in terms of these podcasts. Thank you for joining us. Be well and be safe. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.